I'm Jason Solomons and this is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. This month we're dedicating the whole podcast to a subject very close to our hearts, Jewish food. It's at the centre of all Jewish festivals and family gatherings and binds us together as Jews in a way that nothing else can. Whether it's chicken soup or lakshan pudding, falafel or kosher merguez, behind every Jewish dish is a story. A story of wandering, of exile and integration and a little bit of bloating. And who better to unravel some of those stories? Two of this country's leading food writers are my guests this month, Claudia Roden and Giles Corrin. We'll be asking if there's any truth to the stereotype of the overfeeding Jewish mother. We'll be sampling some delectable Sephardi food from North Africa and finding out some of your most memorable Jewish dishes. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian, Tasting Jewish. Shalom, shalom. Now, you might hear some unfamiliar sounds, not coming from the Guardian studio this month, but from the North London kitchen of a personal chef, Fabienne Weiner-Luzzato, who's cooking up a storm right now, a veritable feast of Sephardi food from her family's native country, Tunisia. We'll be speaking to Fabienne in a short while and sampling some of her dishes, and we'll be speaking to our guests Claudia Roden and Giles Corrin. But before then, let's hear some of your experiences of Jewish food that stick in your mind or your throat. My mum was really a legendary cook, and she was uh, famous for that in the, in the community and amongst our friends. And uh, for me, Friday night dinner, Kabbalat Shabbat, probably the most consistent and uh, loved food was um, roast potatoes. That people, after their dinner, friends of ours at 10 p.m. or 11 o'clock after we finished our dinner, uh, suddenly one or two or three of our friends used to come to have... Uh, leftovers roast potatoes. Both my parents came from England, so it was quite um, a mainstream uh, greens like uh, overcooked uh, beans or peas or carrot. But the the chicken and the potatoes were were, were perfect. My favourite Jewish dish was my grandma's lakshan pudding, made of lakshan and cinnamon. I remember and raisins and very sweet and very stodgy. It takes me back to a small kitchen in Woodside Park <laughs> with uh, one of those plastic tablecloths over the top and my grandma probably standing around kind of flapping, cooking, making cups of tea while we were eating. My most memorable Jewish dish is the definitive Jewish delicacy as far as I'm concerned. Um, much maligned tongue. The thing that probably, as far as I, I can guess, that puts people off is that it's the pimples that actually repulse people. If tongue is prepared properly, you actually do peel off that outer layer. And I hope this isn't upsetting some people while they're having their breakfast. And it's actually a delicacy. It's the most delightful tender meat. And uh, I, I do recommend people to overcome their initial fear of the pimples and, and indulge themselves. My parents are of a Jewish Iraqi background, and although I grew up in Israel, my mother might as well have stayed in Iraq. And I just remember her in the kitchen all the time. And my favorite food, being a vegetarian, which is very odd for Iraqi parents, is a dish called kitri. And kitri is um, it's rice that is made with loads of lentils, garlic and tomato puree and some butter, quite oily, but very, very almost sweet because the garlic gets caramelized and the smell around the house. And it's something that traditionally we'd eat on a Thursday afternoon. So we'd come home from, thir- on, from school on Thursday afternoon 
And it wasn't as if we sat around the table. We, it's like King's Cross. People would come and go all the time. Loads and loads of people. Massive family. I'd always ask for more, which my parents were very, very pleased because it's all about eating. You have to eat. And if you eat, they're happy. My fond memory are the chalas. And I remember as a little girl, I used to come home from school on Friday lunchtime and there was such a aroma of chalas which uh, welcomed me already in the garden. But straight away, it made me associate with the coming of Shabbos, which was for us, I mean, always I remember as children and later as well, and an exquisite time where we had our parents for ourselves, our siblings together and uh, worries or anything suddenly disappeared. So the chalas, this aroma, brought me, at the time, already, oh, Shabbos is coming. Oh, it's so wonderful. A memorable Jewish recipe for me is boiled gefilte fish. And it's memorable because it's possibly the most disgusting thing that's ever been put on a plate in front of you. It comes in a grey, sludgy soup. It's the texture of kind of like soft flesh without actually having any bite to it at all. And the idea of putting this in your mouth as a child, and I'm sure it is delicious as an adult. I have to ask adults that I know whether they still eat it or not. But it's cold as well, slightly cold onions, slightly flabby texture topped with a boiled carrot was, as a child, possibly the most revolting thing I have ever, ever eaten. <laughs> the sound of parsley being scissored into a dish. What are you doing there, Fabienne? So I'm making some boulettes, um, which are like, the base is uh, meat, uh, beef, with some, a lot of parsley, uh, onions, tomatoes, and I'm going to put some spices in it, uh, some dried rose and some harissa. And uh, after that, I'm going to wrap them in uh, different vegetables, artichoke, courgette, potatoes and I will fry them and then cook them and then we'll eat them and you will eat them well you carry on, you carry on with that and I'll go over to our guests uh, Claudia Roden and Giles Corrent welcome uh, to Sounds Jewish welcome to Taste Jewish this is our first Taste Jewish I must say as you heard from some of the, uh, the, the people there um, Jewish food as you know Claudia teaching my grandmother to, to you know, make egg and onion here um, Jewish food comes from all over. That, that panoply of voices we heard there, some of them don't make it sound too appetizing. Gefilte fish. I know that's something that yeah, even you, who wrote the uh, the Doyen's book, the book of Jewish food, gefilte fish was probably the one that made you not do it. Actually, I must say it can be good. It can be, and just some people do manage to make it good. And uh, well, it wasn't my culture, and uh, my parent, my mother was very anti-Ashkenazi uh, food. Uh, she wouldn't eat it. And in Egypt, a lot of my relatives, we had some Ashkenazi relatives, but most of us, m- most of them were not. And so when they did food, uh, the, my relatives would say things like, you know, to make it sort of very clear that, you know, what's this funny kind of food? And uh, uh, somehow... 
uh, we didn't appreciate it in Egypt, and we pretended we wouldn't eat it, <laughs> you know, but we did. Well, I grew, I grew up here in London, and I have to say that most of the, the Jewish food that I was eating was Ashkenazi food. Giles Corrin, I don't know uh, if that was the similar experience for you too. Yeah, I'd like to compliment Claudia on her Yiddish accent. I thought that Knaidlach sounded good. I don't know whether you were trying to make it sound bad, Knaidlach, Kreplach, Lokshan, whatever you're going to put in chicken soup. Uh, Knaidlach is great. I'm, I think there's a, I th- there is a recipe for them in your book. I, see, I seem to remember it has a hint for how to make them light and fluffy. Why would you want Knaidlach to be light and fluffy? They're meant to be lead and they should be like bullets. You should drop them on your toe and, and, and break a bone. Um, it, I, the thing about gefilterfish is probably true. It is terrible. The, th- it's when they're made in, the thing about as an Ashkenazi as opposed to uh, a gefilterfish ball looks a bit like an elderly Ashkenazi man. That's the, that, there's an almost cannibalistic thing, isn't there, to eat them? And that slightly sugary thing, slightly sweet fish. It's a bit scary, but it's a bit like eating your Uncle Gus. Do, do you have... Uh, your, your family is Ashkenazi. Are you from Eastern Europe? Did you, mm. have, do you actually have a, did you have an Eastern European relative that used to float around with that kind of uh, recipe in their, in their bones? Oh, or, or I'm 100% Ashkenazi. It's just that my, my, it's sort of all dissipated during my parents' life, and I, you know, it, it wasn't a huge part of mine, but they were all there. My great-grandpa Harry, who came from the Ukraine in 1885 from Lvov, he, uh, he's, he spoke, his first language was Yiddish. I, he used to say he lived on Edgware Road. And I didn't know what that was. Edgware Road. Where is this? It's Edgware Road. Edgware Road. Uh, uh, yeah. And, my, uh, and also on my father's side, they're all Polish, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, but terrible food, basically. Um, my mother was, was, from, was, from, was from Bratislava. They were, they were Slovakian. Uh, and in fact, they were Czech. But the, the country that they were from, Czechoslovakia, didn't exist when they were born and it didn't exist when they died, but in, it was there in the middle. And she was a great cook and she cooked all the... My, my favourite thing was chicken soup with the knedlach and the unborn chicken eggs, which you can only get from a kosher butcher. The golden nuggets, we called them in our family, because not everyone got one. When they got too many cousins to get one, it was a favourite. Like, you'd, you'd move a little bit of lokshan and there was a golden nugget, an egg in there. Well, my, my grandmother knew it was my favourite, so when she went to the butcher, she'd always get extra eggs for me. And she'd show them to me inside the chicken, all lined up waiting to pop out with the biggest one nearest the end and the tiny ones the, the smaller they were the sweeter uh, Claudia look, she's like looking at us with, this, with, the, with the disgust of us a refined Sephardi uh, just to define a term very quickly when you say Sephardi food where, where are we talking about in the world where are we talking the influences that encompass it the word Sephardi means Spain it means the Jews who came from Spain but now the word Sephardi means everybody who's not Ashkenazi it means apart on the whole it's mainly the Jews around the Mediterranean, and uh, but now the Indian Jews consider themselves Sephardi. The Yemenite Jews, the Baghdadi Jews, uh, who are Babylonian Jews, they call themselves as well. They are considered Sephardi. So it is a broad world, and uh, because I come from Egypt, and in Egypt, and my community wasn't just Egyptian Jews; it was a cosmopolitan community where. My relatives, three of my relatives came from Aleppo in Syria, one came from Turkey, Istanbul, and we married into Moroccan, Tunisian, Iraqi families. And so we were uh, abroad tastes, really, but everyone kept to theirs. It was their identity. And mine was mainly Syrian, because three of my grandparents, and the Syrian culture, especially from Aleppo, is the most powerful Sephardi food culture. They think of themselves as the best, and they think they are the pearl of the, of the Jewish kitchen. And so we were very, very proud of ours. How does that, that, that 
royalty manifest itself? Is it in spices? Is it in delicacy? Is it in the in the in the actual kind of blending, or is it in the kind of the the, the power of the cooking? It's in delicacy, and we were that what you'd know here of Aleppo cooking. The the nearest is Lebanese food, because Lebanon was part of Greater Syria, and so a lot of the Jews were going to Lebanon and Syria. But the Jews of Aleppo thought they were much more refined than those of of Damascus. Well, the difference is that you'd find that they use, for instance, tamarind, more pomegranate syrup, or some refinements in flavours. The the, uh, the spice rack of an Ashkenazi kitchen is not a it's not a sort of glamorous place. I'm just going to interrupt you there uh, for a second because Fabienne is uh, is rolling and pounding and caressing, um, but she's also cooking. Uh, what's going on, Fabienne? Where are we at? So I've finished my meat preparation. Where I put all my uh, my spices. Um, tomatoes, meat, etc. And um, I'm now um, wrapping the meat bowl uh, with vegetables that I cut uh, finely. And uh, I'm going to prepare the batter to fry them. So um, dipping them in the, in the flour and in, uh, in eggs. We have courgette, uh, courgette peels there. Yes, we've got courgettes, uh, we've got potatoes and artichokes. My, my stomach is already rumbling. Claudia, when you were first, not just your book of Jewish food, but your actual, your first book was the, the food of the Middle East. Uh, these were not particularly fashionable subjects in a way, particularly to publishers here in the UK and uh, I suppose to Knopf in, uh, in, in New York, who do also do Julia Child's work. I mean, people would look very, very puzzled and they would say, is it about sheep's eyes and testicles? And yum, <laughs> testicles, delicious. Never liked eyes, testicles, yummy. Do you do have recipes for testicles? I, I do, but not in the book. But I do, because... I, <laughs> I, I did, oh, well, it goes to a house. <laughs> no, no, because one day I went and bought piles and piles of testicles to try them in every way, grilled, fried, stewed, you know, with tomatoes and onions, you know, everything. But anyhow, Jewish food never had a good image. And people, when I would tell them I, that's what I'm working on, they had a, 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 a look of horror and, and like, poor thing. And, uh, and they kept, and several people were saying there's no such thing. When your wonderful book, The Book of Jewish Food, came out, that the many storied histories of, of, of Jewish food, and we're just hearing them uh, again uh, from you. It strikes me that the, the Ashkenazim food is, is peasant food, basically, as Charles and I are kind of uh, finding out there. Um, why, why, why are the Sephardi foods so refined? Why, why, weren't there any, why were there no Sephardi peasants? Well, I am going to tell the story of this, this actually. The dish that Fabienne is making. Because the Sephardi Jews, on the whole, were living in, in port cities. And they were mainly uh, urban. Whereas the Ashkenazi Jews were rural. They were living in shtetls. And at one time, they were forced to live in the Pale, in Russia, but in ghettos. The Sephardi Jews lived in the Muslim world, whereas the uh, Ashkenazi Jews were in the Christian world. And the Sephardi Jews on the whole in the Muslim worlds were never ever restricted. But they did live in in, uh, their own quarters because they wanted to live near the butcher, the kosher butcher, near the synagogue. And uh, so in that way, 
uh, it's it mattered that they were together. Because really, I mean, they, 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 in to some extent, Jewish cuisine, although much better, is a refraction of the host cuisine, isn't it? So the so the generally Northern European dishes, you know, that is like a Polish or Hungarian or Czech food is, and then the, there's a Jewish version of it, just as the Sephardi one is, yeah. like the Arab cuisine. Well, the Ashkenazi cuisine was born in Germany, actually, and most of the dishes that the Jews have got for their Sabbath uh, were all born in Germany in the Middle Ages. But they had to leave Germany and go to Poland uh, when they were persecuted in Germany. But so the Jews always went further east, and then when uh, Poland was uh, divided it became Prussia and, and part of Russia. So they kept their style from Poland, from Germany. They always took it as a baggage. It was their baggage, their identity. And uh, in a way, like Yiddish, it was their Yiddish in the way of food. In Russia, uh, they adopted new things. Wherever they went, they adopted new things, but the core of their traditions remain the things from Germany. I think another thing that's very important, looking at Fabienne preparing food that defines Jewish cooking, is the quantity of it. Yeah. I mean, she's making enough of, enough of boulettes to feed a, properly an army. Uh, I mean, really, four would have been enough. There must be 12 already. Yeah. It's, it's this seems like a good time to go and, to go and find out from Fabienne uh, where, where this is coming from. Um, I bet you were the youngest of seven children. Oh, you still are the youngest of seven children, please God. Um, presumably, there's, you know, you, you have to you have to fight to get a get a look in at mealtimes in your family. We, um, I remember for Shabbat uh, when my mother was making those boulettes that I promised myself that I will never make because they're far too complicated to make. But here I am today, <laughs> um, and uh, we we used to never have e- enough of them, and she used to fry tons and tons of them, and we used to have twenty five people around the table, and um, and we used to eat three, four five boulettes with all the kemia and the salads and by the time the st- that was only the starter by the time the starter was finished the couscous was coming but uh, we didn't have any any place so this anymore. was a, a shabbat meal this would yeah. have been made on the friday morning and lasted all the way through till 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 to the so evening on saturday probably Monday night because she was making so many of them. <laughs> and where, where? So she she was from Tunisia. Are you from Tunisia yourself, or you were born outside of the diaspora of, of uh, Tunisia? I was born in Paris. I was born in Paris, and out of uh, seven children, five uh, were born in Tunisia, and uh, two in, in in France. And does Tunisia obviously loom large in your, in your house, but in your community when you were growing up in Paris, many Tunisian Jews around? A lot of Sephardi. The Sephardi community in Paris is, uh, is very big. And uh, we are also uh, separated in synagogue into like a, a Moroccan uh, traditions, Algerian traditions, Tunisian traditions. And uh, we all have got uh, our different uh, uh, rites and uh, customs and... Uh, and Claudia was talking about uh, different uh, food in different areas of Tunisia. But uh, today, when we speak about couscous, I don't know, in, at home we were already having like seven different couscous, like uh, fish couscous, uh, uh, cumin and uh, white beans couscous, uh, uh, chickpeas couscous, that was all separate couscous, vegetables couscous, couscous with lamb, couscous with beef, couscous with chicken. <laughs> so 
Well, you carry on uh, making some boulette. Uh, I don't mind feeding an army. I'm kind of feeling quite peckish uh, just watching you and talking uh, about uh, about this. Um, I'm going to uh, turn to our, our guests, uh, Claudia and Giles. Claudia, you, you're pointing uh, eagerly at the spices there. No, I'm, I want to tell the story of that those meatballs because again it it shows you that every every dish has a story and the story is that uh, as soon as I saw what she was doing in one second I knew that she was a Livonese of Tunisia and the Livonese have a story and their story is that they were Maranos means converts to Christianity in Portugal, it means they had run away from Spain at the time of the banishment, of the expulsion. They went to Portugal, but some of them uh, managed to go to Livorno. Livorno was a Tuscan city that wanted to become a great maritime power. They went to Livorno, and they became Italian, uh, sort of. Because they spoke uh, uh, an Italian-Portuguese accent and they did the kind of food that was partly Portuguese, partly Italian. But what happened then is that as their people came out of, of Portugal to go to Livorno, they were captured by Tunisian pirates in the Mediterranean. And uh, so those other uh, Livornese Jews who were already in Livorno started coming to Tunisia to pay the ransom, to ransom them. And so they, they, as they came, the Tunisian Bay, after a few uh, years, decided that these people were so clever and all that will invite them to start to come and to be their consuls, their uh, financial advisors, <laughs> no, but to be their opening to the world. So they came and they settled and they opened, uh, they started a community uh, that was, they called them the Grano, Grana. Ogoni, and they were Livonese. They kept up their Livonese identity, and they've got Italian names, Luzzato, you know. And so this is uh, a, a type of Jewish dish. There are many like this all over the Jewish world that have a story, and this is the story. It's it, if without the pirates, they wouldn't have been there. Well, it looks like they were going to taste amazing anyway, but now they're going to taste of all of that story as well because every mouthful is going to taste of history and, and high seas and piracy. I, I can't wait. We're joined Fabien by the cooker. What, I'm about what's going on? To, uh, to, uh, to fry the, the, the meatballs, the boulettes. The boulettes are sizzling now. The sound and, and smell of boulettes uh, sizzling away. Uh, does, that, does that bring back, I mean, you're doing it here, Fabienne, but does it bring back memories of you of being in your mother's kitchen? Oh, yes, yes. Each my time mother, you cook it. Yeah, my mother used to make those on, uh, on Thursday night, uh, and the smell was still in the house on Friday um, Friday <laughs> morning and on Friday morning she was starting uh, a couscous at five o'clock in the morning so before breakfast we were like uh, eating the smell of couscous and uh, it was lovely not so appetizing but uh, lovely <laughs> 
as they're sizzling away in the uh, in the pot, and before we have our boulette, uh, it, it 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 seems to be about the right time to talk about memories uh, as well, because that's what uh, food and the stories that Claudia has been telling it always kind of comes with the Jewish food. It's almost that the side helping comes with memories that can be bitter, that can be beautiful, they can be historical, they can be personal. Uh, Giles. When you were, uh, you, you mentioned before your uh, your your Yiddish-speaking grandparents, uh, were they cooking around? Were they did did you have a particular dish that someone did that was uh, that you still now get get shivers from? Yeah, I mean, well, my Yiddish-speaking great-grandparents, I think, to be to be fair, my 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 uh, grandparents, they spoke German and Hungarian, all sorts of useful things. Yeah, my mother's mother, my my grandmother, cooked all sorts of things. There's a a very significant, the, probably the most significant one for me is cholent. Only when I read Claudia's book did I realise the significance of this dish and how it worked with Shabbat, which was not a thing that we kept. So what, describe a cholent, or the one that, at least that you had. Well, this, the, 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 the cholent is, is, is a piece of is a fatty, cheap cut of beef cooked in, in, in beans and barley with, if you're Hungarian, then always paprika, uh, and salt and pepper, I mean, and, and, and if you're lucky. Uh, and that, that is basically it. Um, it's a classic Shabbat dish because on the Friday everything's put in the and the Friday everything's put in the pot, taken with with a, with a pastry seal. I learned from from Claudia. Every family's doing their own little way to so know which one it is. Down to the baker's ovens, presumably switched off by then, but cooling but still sort of warm overnight on Saturday on the way back from shul. Uh, pick it up on the way home, break the crust, open it up, and there's the smell. The very fat essence of, of Jewish food is absences. There's no meat and milk together. There's no pork. When you were uh, making a recipe, because there are times where you think, well, I wish I could just add a little bit of something, but that would, would that stop its Jewishness? Isn't its Jewishness perhaps its resourcefulness to get round those absences? Uh, yes, its resourcefulness. And no, I never felt, because there are so many Jewish dishes that, you know, you'll find one, you'll find hundreds and hundreds that are uh, uh, very gastronomic. The thing is, is that Jewish cuisine, the Ashkenazi cuisine, it, it's... it's it's a joke I've a joke I've made in print uh, uh, only once, but I, but, but uh, you know it, it, I went to review. I think it was called Six Thirteen. It was on Wigmore Street. Is it still there? Yeah. I wrote a review saying the gefilte fish was terrible, as it should be. The thing is, is that you go for a, the high Misha flavour. It can't. I mean, how do you elevate it? You can't. The kinds of things you do to make food poncier, famously smaller portions. What Jew is going to go to a place where the food is like home, except there's less of it? You know, it, it's never going to work. Don't they call it posh stuff there as well. Yeah, chicken soup is, is I don't know, consomme. I, yeah. I've got to say, the night that I went, they'd run out of chicken soup, and I, I said, "This is you've opened a Jewish restaurant, and you've run out of chicken soup." Well, there is a place at the old Bevis Mark Synagogue, the very old Bevis Mark Synagogue, a restaurant called. But I went to review that. That has normal food made with 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 kosher ingredients, which is an attempt to be posh. Obviously, that's terrible. Well, there is part of the reason for this is that the Jewish cooking is, to all intents and purposes, the cooking of the home. Uh, yes, it is the cooking of the home, in a way the secret cooking that you only find when you are invited in somebody's home. Uh, and I, I was told, I, it really struck to me when I was in Turkey at a conference, and it wasn't a conference about Jews at all, but a Turkish gastronome, one of the top gastronomes, suddenly said, while we're here and Claudia Roden is here, I'll have to ask her why I am... Uh, 50 years old, and I've been a gastronomer, and I've only just two weeks ago eaten Jewish food of Turkey, and, and uh, because he was invited in somebody's home. Actually, right now, he's died a few years ago, very young. It wasn't the meal, I hope, though, did it? It wasn't the... It wasn't the Jewish no. meal that killed him. Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but... Uh, 
Now there are Jewish dishes in Turkey in restaurants because some women have started making some little things and selling them to restaurants. And so in a way the borekas of, uh, of Turkey, boreks, mm-hmm. the Jews now are selling their borekitas. Uh, and they are quite different from anything that the Turks eat. I think, there's a, I think another point, if you're looking for a real reason why you wouldn't run a Jewish restaurant, is kosher meat is very expensive. Uh, and, you know, the margins, the margins, the posh of the restaurant, the smaller the margins are. If, you've got to, if you ever buy a kosher chicken, you know, it, it is 25 quid or something for a decent-sized kosher. It's very expensive, very hard to turn a profit. But also the question of being kosher is completely different... Uh, uh, from being Jewish, because as you see, Jewish can be Jewish from Lithuania, can be Jewish from Poland, can be Jewish. And who would prefer Polish food to Mediterranean food? You know, that's why uh, Sephardi food is me. mostly Mediterranean. I would. I'm <laughs> Polish food, yeah, cabbage, sausages. I don't want all that sun-dried tomato <laughs> nonsense. Carp. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Carp. that's right. And, and uh, the thing is, the food of the Ashkenazim, the fish, was always the river fish. And they actually raised carp. That was their, their they had ponds making, uh, raising cup. And there were stories that, I, from my, that my grandfather used to tell, my great grandfather used to tell, that the, the, the Jews that first came to England, they kept carp in the bath. Because they wanted it fresh and they bought it on Thursday. Um, oh, no, I think it's because, it's, because, it's because Jews don't like going fishing. Jews are far too impatient to go fishing. I think Jews don't like washing either. No. Yes, probably. I, I think a Jew just wants to put his hand into a pond and, and pull out a fish. He doesn't want to sit there casting flies for three days, waiting, waiting for a salmon coming upstream to jump out and maybe, yeah, no. Am, am I right in thinking that fish and chips, here we are in England, fish and chips, good old English, that's Jewish, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it was really actually by a Russian Jew who was the first person to open a fish and chip Harry shop. Ramsdinovich. Was it Harry Ramsdinovich? I've got it in my book, oh. if you want. We can look it up. Uh, but uh, but uh, he got the idea because he lived in the East End, and in the East End were Jews who had come from Portugal as Christians, like those who went to Livorno. They came as Christians in the 17th century, and or 18th, summer, 19th, and they reconverted. Uh, but they had the Portuguese way of doing the batter uh, uh, for the fish. But at the same time, in the East End, where the Irish who came because of the famine, and they were all in the East End together, the Shiksas with the Jews, and, uh, and they did chips. So he got the idea of putting together the chips with the fried fish that came with the Jews from Portugal. And so fish and chips was. And at first, I think a lot of the chippies and the fried fish stores were Jewish, starting in, in East End, but then that's moving... Where, that's where the Corran millions come from. My, my, great, <laughs> my great-grandfather, I say millions, the Corran dozens of pennies. My, my grandfather, Harry Corran, great-grandfather Harry Corran, came from Ukraine in 1903 with his brother, went into fish, they had a couple of wet fish shops, then he went into edible oil, H. Corran Edible Oils of Packington Street, which was uh, all, and basically all the oils of all the Jewish fish and chip shops came from H. Corran. And I went into a fish shop in Islington about 10 years ago, and an elderly couple, about 80 in there, uh, 80 years old, and, and afterwards I was talking to them about it, and I said, oh, my family were in, were in fish, they were in oil, actually. They said, what's your name? So I said, Corran. And they said, you're not related. And I thought, 
Alan Corrin. That's always always wanted to know. I said, yeah, Alan Corrin's my dad. No, Harry Corrin. Go away. He's my great grandfather. Oh, Harry Corrin. I remember he used to come round. He'd bring the he'd bring the oil on the the, the, the vats of oil on a on a on a on a, on a horse a horse and cart. Um, you know, you'd order twelve, and only when he'd gone did he realise he'd only left eleven. <laughs> A Corrin's dozen. Yeah, a Corrin's dozen. <laughs> well, I think we can hear uh, cutlery coming down, and I can smell boulettes in front of us. So I think now is the time to say, in time on a Jewish tradition, let's eat. Claudia, Claudia, how are Fabienne's boulettes? Fabienne, they are fantastic, really fantastic. Do they taste of all the all the things you were talking about? Can you can you feel the pirates in there from Livorno? <laughs> I'm thinking of the pirates. <laughs> There's harissa in there, isn't there? Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, fantastic. Really good. Mm. I hate doing all that nom 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 broadcasting. But it is great. Normally it's impolite, but for some reason here it's allowed. Thank you very much for your boulettes de viande. And uh, they are, they've, they've, gone down, they've gone down a storm with our critics and our historians here and with the presenter as well, Noch. So uh, it remains for me to say uh, thank you very much. We've got a glass of kosher wine here. So, uh, cheers, everyone. L'chaim. L'chaim. On that final note, we're going to have to leave you for this gourmet edition of Sounds Jewish. My huge thanks to Giles Corrin, to Claudia Roden, and to Fabian for our exquisite food. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. We'll be taking a break for the summer now, but we'll be back to celebrate the Jewish New Year in the autumn with apple and honey. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters. Goodbye. Shalom, shalom.